And so we thank you for the gift of Jesus and his life that's laid out in these pages that we can grow more and more every day like him. God, this morning I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart is acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. All right, church number three. We're doing this series on the seven churches, the seven letters in the book of Revelation. Church number three is a church of Pergamum. I wish they had easier names like, I don't know, New York, Hartford. No, but Pergamum, Pergamum, M-U-M, mum. And this church is not a major trade city as Ephesus and Smyrna was. This church is kind of more landlocked, so it's a little different. In fact, it's a capital city. And so there's this, there's this different feel to this city. There's this kind of buzz that goes on here. It's kind of like a New York or London or say, or say Washington. So it's kind of a, a big deal to be in this city and to be part of this city. And by the time John is writing the book of Revelation, this city... Pergamum has been a capital for over 300 years. And in fact, that's its claim to fame. That's, that's where it finds its greatness, that it's been this, this pillar for so many years. Now, here we find one of the largest and most prestigious libraries in all of the ancient worlds. In fact, there was over 200,000 books in this library. Now, you have to remember, books, they had no printing presses back then. When you wanted to copy a book, you had to, first of all, know how to read and know how to write. So you had to be a scholar. And so there were scholars that lived at this library. And these books were all hand-copied. And so it was a very prestigious thing to have this type of library in the city. In fact, the word parchment comes from, derives its, its uh, name from the name Pergamum. Now, just like all the other churches that we're going to read about, this was a center of very different and diverse worship going on here. Uh, there were altars and shrines and temples to the God of gods, Zeus. In fact, one of the most famous altars in all of the ancient world resided in this city. It was like 800 feet on the side of this hill. It was like 40 feet long and and I think 20 feet high. And 24 hours a day, you would see smoke rising from this altar because, because sacrifices were never stopped, never stopped being sacrificed there. And you can see this from anywhere in the city, on this hillside, this altar to this pagan god, and sacrifices continually going on and on and on. There was also a temple to Asclepius. Asclepius was the god of healing. And and this temple, his temple, was considered to be a medical center, a medical center for cultic practices. One ancient writer would write that, uh, if you spent the night in the temple and it was filled with snakes, because that's the symbol of this God, uh, he was symbolized as a snake. And if you spent a night in the temple and it was, it's always, they kept it black. And if you slept there and one of these snakes slithered across you, awkward, it would heal you of whatever was ailing you because it was a touch 
from the God himself. Now, also in this city, it was a major hub of Caesar worship. Now, we've been talking about this for the last couple weeks. Caesar worship is when you have to go and worship Caesar once a year. So you get your certificate so you can get a job. You can buy stuff. You can keep your land. You don't get thrown in jail or you don't get killed. This is a major city for this worship. And what I find very interesting is that, uh, especially here in 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 Pergamum, the Christians, because they did not believe or worship these false gods, Because they did not worship Caesar, they were considered to be atheists. They were considered to be haters of humanity. And so they were persecuted. In fact, as John is writing this letter, Christianity is not even considered to be a religion. It's a superstition. It's like like if we gather to worship unicorns and leprechauns. And so they were just looked at as as a joke. And Jesus will talk to this church. He's going to say these words. I'm going to get used to this thing one day or other. To the angel of the church in Pergamum writes, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city. Tradition says that Antipas was wrapped in the body of a bull and burned. That's persecution. All right, just let's go. My faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some of you who hold on to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also you have those who hold on to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To those who, were, who are victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give each of them a white stone with a new name written on it, only known to the one who receives it. All right, so there's a lot going on in this letter. So we're going to have to, we're going to, have to break this down slowly but surely. Verse 12, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. Now, a sharp, a double-edged sword would have been very familiar imagery to this church and because they're part of the Roman occupation. This was a symbol of Roman justice, this idea of a double-edged sword. All of the, the good and the bad, or whatever, however you want to view Rome, this was their symbol of justice. And what Jesus is telling this church, okay, you know what? It is me, not some government, not some people. I am ultimately the judge. I am the one who holds the sword. And so this church finding itself persecuted, I mean, people consider them a superstition that needs to be stamped out. Jesus says, there's there's no government. There's, There's no people. There's nothing that is going to stand before me in judgment. Because ultimately, 
I will judge everyone. God is the one who holds all power, holds all power in his hands and will judge all people. And, 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 I, and I wonder if it's, if it's this, this idea back in, in Deuteronomy where it says, these are the words of, of God. See now that I myself am he. There is no God beside me. I put to death and I bring to life. I have wounded and I will heal and no one can deliver out of my hand. I lift my hand to heaven and declare as surely as I live forever, when I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand grasps it in judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and repay those who hate me. And, 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 and just thinking back to Deuteronomy and hearing what Jesus is speaking to this church, that he is the one who holds this sword. This has to instill confidence into the heart of this church because no matter what people say, governments say, religions say, the follower of Jesus believes and can be assured that God is the ultimate judge in all things. And it doesn't, ma- it doesn't matter if you believe in Jesus or not. I know that's probably politically incorrect to say, but I don't care. It probably, he is going to judge you. He is going to judge everyone. Every person that's ever been created will bring glory to God. Every person will bring glory to God, either by being a recipient of his grace and his mercy or being a recipient of his divine judgment and his wrath. The power to judge solely rests in the hands of God. Verse 13 says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Where it says, I know where you live, when, when the, when, especially in the New Testament, when it talks about the follower of Jesus living or dwelling in a place, there's a certain way, a certain words that are used to describe it. And usually in the Greek, it comes down to, it has this meaning of, we are just sojourners. We are just here and we're, we're passing through. We don't have a permanent residence here. The biblical idea is this. This world is not our home. And that's, that should be encouraging to us because all of the brokenness and the hurt and all the things that press against us, they don't define us. Ultimately, this place is not our home. And listen, we are not called to live with this attitude of, man, I just can't wait to get out of here. We are called to live well here in this world. We are called to to preach the good news. We are called to push back the darkness and reveal the kingdom of God to people. But it's not our home. One day, for the follower of Jesus, we will be with the Lord. And that's, that's, that's good news. But, the way it's used here, this is very significant because the, the phrase and the word, um, the word live, to, to live or to dwell, means it has the meaning of a permanent place of resident, a residence. These people are not going anywhere. They have been settled. They're no longer a stranger. They're not passing through. 
And what's being said to them is this. I know what you're going through. You are living in a place where the influence and the power of Satan is heavy upon you. And you know what? You know what, church? You're going to continue to live there. You're not going anywhere. This is where I have you. This is where you're, this is where you're living. This is where your church is. And as all of this satanic uh, influence presses you and harasses you, this is exactly where I have put you. And this is where you are to live your life. And this is where you are to live as Christians. Man, you know what? There's like, there's absolutely no wiggle room at all there. I mean, that's, that's not a easy thing. Jesus is not promising them, hey, don't just hang out for a while. It's going to get better. Uh-uh. They are in it. There is absolutely no wiggle room. And I believe as a community of faith for us and as individuals, we cannot, we cannot run away from difficult situ- situations in our life. And here's, Here's the danger. We tend to run, and, and, this, is, and this is my experience, and, and I've seen it over and over again. We tend to run in a very subtle way. We tend to hide in a very subtle way. Let me give you a hypothetical example. You may work at a place And in this place of work, it is not owned by a Christian man or woman. It's not managed or operated by any Christians. In fact, you just might be the only Jesus follower in the whole entire place. And so you may be surrounded by people who have little to maybe no faith at all. And so they may, they may live their lives by, by different standards. And they may even have a different work ethic than you have. And their language, well, it's, it's colorful as they use those words. And their stories, especially after a weekend, Monday morning stories, they, they would make the devil blush with embarrassment. And there you are, you find yourself in this environment. And, and so you just kind of, you kind of disengage a little bit. You know, you, you, don't, you don't really take part in those conversations. And maybe, maybe break time, you, you tend to stay over there because, you know what, you just don't want to be around, around that. You don't want that. You don't want to be exposed to the potty mouth and the, the joking and the stories. And, you know, you just, you just, ah. And so you just kind of hang back and your only interaction is really work-related or it's very superficial. Service call. Somebody's furnace is broken. Let's pray. God, we bless them. Fix their furnace. Amen. Okay, so let's go. And, and so, and, 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 you, and you, you find yourself just not being part of the group. And see, the danger there is when, when, you, when you have that, that, that mindset and even that attitude, it's where we get this derogatory label put on us at times that we become holier than thou. And that does a lot to ruin the witness of Christ. How can we share the love of God with people? How can we 
share the gospel with people who don't understand it, who may never even know it, unless we spend time with them in their environments. Unless we get to know them, unless we get to be part of their lives, we have to release this expectation that we have about people that people who do not follow Jesus should act like people who do. That's like me telling Ethan, who's nine, listen, buddy, I need you you to act like a a mature 35-year-old young man and go in that other room for coffee with everyone and not run around like a maniac with all the other kids in the sanctuary after church. That's stupid. Okay, that's just not going to happen. God, Jesus, Jesus calls us to be in this world. He calls us to be in this world, not of it. But we are called to be in this world. And he's given us authority to live and to speak truth and love into people's lives. He's given us the authority to live the gospel out there, to be in the world, but not of it. You have the Spirit of God residing in you, and you can live with grace, patience, and mercy, and love. Jesus is telling this church, you guys are in it, man, and you are in it deep. And like, this is the throne of Satan. I mean, there's just, there's just really bad stuff happening around you. But you have not lost your faith. In fact, people still see that you belong to me. And Christ calls us, his church, to do the exact same thing. Faith is not strengthened hiding in the walls of a church. Faith is not strengthened just by hanging around with your Christian friends, doing all of the Christian things. Faith is strengthened when it leaves this building and it's lived out there and it's lived out in the world. And you stand firm and you are walking and moving in the world, but you are not becoming part of the world. And that's where your faith is strengthened. And when you're out there, you know what? You might get a little dirty once in a while. And you might get a little offended once in a while. But you know what I have to say about that? So what? As the sheep stand before the shearer and doesn't open its mouth, so our Lord Jesus Christ was spit on and beaten and humiliated and never said a word, but still loved those people. And so we are called to live in those situations that are hard. And as we grow in our faith, strengthen our faith as individuals. When we gather as a community, we become a community that's growing in faith, strengthening in ourselves in the spirit. But Jesus has a few things against this church. I mean, they're living persecuted and suffering, but Jesus has just, just a couple things against this church. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. It's like I read this before or something. 
There are some among you who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak how to to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaite, those guys. What's, What's happening here is this church has been faithful in certain areas, and they're doing well. But there's, there's also an area of this church where they're starting to fall apart. They're allowing heresy not only into the church, but to thrive in the church. And it's not just about doctrine. It's not just about teaching. This is about what people and how people are living their lives every day. And it's having an effect on the entire church. What it's talking about here is probably people within this Christian church are saying, you know, it's okay if you want to go take part in some of these other temples and some of this other worship stuff. And especially it's okay if you just want to go once a year and take that little pinch of incense and burn it to Caesar. Because, I mean, it's, everybody is doing it. And it's more of a, a civic duty and not really, not really religious worship. But during those times of worshiping Caesar and they worship him as God and Savior, during those times, there'd be festivals and there'd be people would be sacrificing food. And what's being taught and what's being practiced is the Christian, it's okay to take part in that. It's okay to be an idolater, have other gods before God. Hey, why not, right? Everybody else is doing it. And the sexual immorality, well, There's no hidden meaning there. The morals of the ancient world were very, very loose. And so what he's speaking to here is extramarital, premarital, same sex, things like bestiality. All of those things took place back then. And we think, ew, gross, and you really should about that. But those things are in the Bible. If God had to make a law against it, that means people were doing it. And so, and and this is now being introduced into the church. And so, yeah, I think Jesus does have something to say against them. Like, what are you doing? Really? And then the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Say it with me, Nicolaitans. Good. We didn't really talk about that. They were mentioned in uh, the letter to Ephesus, and we didn't really spend a lot of time on that, but I think it's worth uh, reiterating what this group uh, was doing. Nicholas of Antioch was probably one of the seven deacons that we read about in Acts chapter 6, and he just kind of got squirrely in his theology. And what he began to teach was that the Christian could do anything they wanted. They were not held to any law. Because Jesus was a God of grace and mercy and acceptance. So you can do whatever you want, and it was okay. And see, that just, that just goes against basic principles of the Bible. We, we can't do anything we want. We are ultimately called to do the things that please God. And I would say that if you are following God the best you can, and if you love God, that you are not going to practice. And what I mean by practice, make a conscious decision to live outside of God's harmonies. You are not going to make that decision every day to do something that's going to grieve him. And you are not going to live a life that hurts your brothers and your sisters. You see, the church back then was in constant danger 
of being sucked back into the world. There was always this tension of of trying to balance their faith and, and not being just brought back into the practices of the world again. They were always, always in danger of it. And I am so glad that in the church today, we don't have to worry about that at all. Ha! Man, we have to stand guard about that stuff. We have to stand firm against this idea of of liberal license and, and idolatry, sexual immorality. I mean, we celebrate here grace and mercy, but we also know that grace Grace is not an excuse to live poorly. Grace is the reason why we can press into God every moment of every day. Now, I know that we've looked at this idea in Lent. and We went through these, these uh, meditations on, uh, well, we meditated on a lot of different things and really kind of looked inward. And what we looked at was what are the things in our life that we've put before God? What are the things that we worship in our life and put before our worship and our love of God? And I have to ask you again, I mean, that was probably, I would say two months ago, maybe even longer. How are you doing with those things? Because I know that in that moment, I saw a lot of sincerity in the church. And I know that people were really wrestling through some things. But, but now we're, we're two months out, say, is it still there? Is it, is it still that thing that's before God? I mean, I know you had good intention, but all of a sudden, did you just get too busy? Or just got too hard to wrestle with? Or did you just forget about it? Where are you in the context of that? I mean, you identified it. I had you call it by name. And I know that you meant to put it to death and get rid of it, but how are you doing? We, the church, the community, we have to, have to deal with these things. What's that thing in your life that you've just, you know what, I'm just going to take license and I'm just going to go ahead and I'm just going to do this. (laughs) You know? What's that thing in your life that, that you've put before God? What is it? And why is it still there? Look what Jesus says to this church. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus' coming is coming to the entire church. But God's wrath will especially fall on the heresy. God's wrath will fall on those people that are taking part in these, this, this idolatry, this sexual immorality, this, this liberal license that's taking place in the church. But ultimately, it's coming upon the entire church because if the church took a stand against it, those practices would have never taken root. And it has a choice. Either it wars against them and it wars against the things that go against God or God himself is going to come down and he's going to take care of it. And I bet you those, um, those results, results are going to be much more 
dramatic. So they're given choice. And church, we can no longer water down the message of obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. We can't turn it into some theology of, I just want to feel good. We cannot turn it into, well, God wants me to be happy. If you can show me in the Bible that you can go ahead and live outside of God's harmonies just because he wants you to be happy, my office is over there, show me. God does not care about your happiness. He cares about your joy. And you see, joy is beyond circumstances. Happiness comes and goes, man. You know, I mean, you score a goal. I was watching at lacrosse yesterday with, with my son. You, kids scoring a goal, they're happy. And then they get scored against and they ain't so happy anymore. You know, happiness is fleeting, but the joy of the Lord is our strength and that's what he wants for us. And so as we come together as a community, we, we need to repent of the things in our lives that are keeping us from Christ. We need each other for accountability. We need each other for strength. We need each other that that we could speak truth and love into people's lives. We need each other to hear truth in love. We have to look deep within ourselves and repent. Change. And I don't mean just little change. I mean, we need to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit transformed. And you know, I know, I know last week was a really tough week. It it was, it was not a, you know, I feel great sermon. And I know that because some of you said, yeah, I feel like garbage right now. And you know, I don't apologize for that at all because sometimes the word of God, it builds up, but sometimes the word of God has to tear down. And so when we come face to face with our hypocrisy, it hurts. I know that, and I know that well. It was, it was probably a couple years ago. Uh, Sandy and I, we were having a discussion. And in this discussion, I was confident that Sandy, she just misunderstood the, how the outcome of the said discussion should go. And being the loving husband that I am, and the man of God, I was trying to gently bring her to a place of understanding the right thing and not the wrong thing. And so I was just, okay, so we were arguing, all right? And, 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 and so we're going back and forth, and I don't even remember what it was about, and I know it was kind of getting hot and heavy, and I don't know what I said, I don't know what she said, I have no idea. I mean, most arguments after a week or two, you don't remember what they are anyway, but you know, they're just like, oh, they were good, right? So, so we're going back and forth. I remember, this is what she said to me. She turned around and said, you know what? You should start practicing what you preach. Right away, I'm like ready to just take her out, man. I'm just like, who are, but you know what? It would have been less painful if she stuck a butcher knife in my chest. I know what it's like to come face to face with the hypocrisy in our life. But man, you can't stand there. You can't stay there in it. Because the Lord calls us to repent of it. And the Lord calls us to be reconciled back to him through Jesus Christ. And we can know fullness again. Look at the promise that Jesus gives this church. Ah. 
Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to those who are victorious. I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give each of them a white stone with a new name written on it, only, uh, known only to the one who receives it. So those who overcome this, who win the battle within themselves, God will give you some of the hidden manna. And uh, there's some tradition around this idea of hidden manna. Some say Jeremiah was instructed to take it out of the Ark of the Covenant and hide it. Some say angels came and took it out of the Ark of the Covenant and hide it. So there's all this messianic undertone to it. But what it comes down to this, when we overcome through the power of Jesus Christ, the power of the Spirit that's in each one of the Jesus followers, when you overcome the pressures that pull you, that want to pull you back into the world, when you overcome and stand firm against those things that are just trying to suck you back into your old way of life, when you stand against liberty and freedom turning into some liberal license to do whatever you want, your very soul will be nourished from heaven. And the Spirit of God will reside deep within you. It comes down to this. The living Christ wants to live fully in you. The living Christ wants to live fully in you. And this opens us up to the activity of the Holy Spirit becoming more and more evident in our daily lives. Maybe the church doesn't see signs and wonders anymore because because we live our lives like this church, and we have not yet come to that full place of repentance that just that strips us of all that junk and it allows more and more room for the Spirit of God to reside. You'll be given hidden manna, nourishment for your soul, and then it says you'll be given a white stone. There's a lot of different ideas about uh, the white stone. In ancient times, they would take a white stone, and that was your ticket to get into some type of event, some type of banquet, some type of sporting event, or the theater. But there's also this idea, in ancient times, when someone was on trial, they would have a jury. And the jurors were given a white stone, and they were given a black stone. And at the end of the trial, when all the evidence has been presented, the jury would, would go walk up to the urn and they would either put in a white stone or they would put in a black stone. The white stone represented that they decided that you were innocent. The black stone represented that they decided that you were guilty. And depending on how many were in there, if you had more white stones, you were innocent. If you had more black stones, you were found guilty. Do you see what's going on here? This is Christianity 101. That through Jesus Christ and a repentant heart, by the power of the Holy Spirit, God calls you, redeems you into innocence. You have been found not guilty. And that is the good news. The weight of hypocrisy and immorality and license, doing whatever you want, can be released from you with a repentant heart and turning back to God. You don't have to walk under that weight anymore. You're found innocent, a new creation, given a new name. This is a verse in Isaiah. The nations will see your vindication and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord 
will bestow each of you a new name, a new creation. (laughs) That's the good news of Jesus Christ. And so church, this morning, I want us to take some time in repentance. And I want us to take some time in worship. I want us to, to do the work of the soul and open ourselves to the movement and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Spend some time this morning committing yourself to the things of the Lord and repenting of those things that, that you just you know in your heart that is grieving the Spirit of God. Let this day, today, be a new day. Let this day, let, let yourself walk as a new creation. Begin to, begin to just pray away those things that are keeping you in bondage and keeping you from being all that you can be for the kingdom of God. And so we're, we're going we're gonna to spend some more time worshiping this morning. Do the work of the soul. Don't, and, and we're going to have people over here that uh, I've asked some people that they can come and, and they, they can pray for you. And I know that's awkward, and, and, and I understand that. But don't let pride get in the way of your repentance. Don't let pride get in the way of you repenting. God wants to do something in your hearts today. God wants to release you and free you into a newness that you've never known before. And this can be that, this could be that day for many of you. You would just put away that self-consciousness, put away the pride. Do the work of the soul. As we're worshiping, you don't have to stand. You don't have to sing. If you want to sing, that'll be fine. You can come to the cross and, and you could kneel down at the cross. Don't miss this opportunity. And then, and then when you've done that work, when you've done that work, come to this table and take a white stone. And let this stone be a symbol of your repentance. Let this white stone be a symbol of the forgiveness that you have received because of Jesus Christ. Let this white stone be a symbol of your victory this morning. Take it with you. Put it in a place where you can see it. That it could remind you of the work that we're called to do to deepen our intimacy with Jesus and to deepen our obedience.